Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Justin Quirk. Last week, 27 people tragically drowned trying to cross the English Channel from Calais in an inflatable dinghy. The International Organisation for Migration said it was the biggest single loss of life in the Channel since it began collecting data in 2014. Recent days have seen Britain and France at loggerheads over how to solve the crisis, with the number of people crossing the Channel in 2021 far exceeding previous years. With no sign of the number of desperate people dropping and political relations between Britain and France at their lowest point for decades, is there any way to solve this seemingly insoluble situation? Joining me to discuss the crisis is Zoe Gardner, Policy and Advocacy Manager at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Welcome to The Bunker, Zoe. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me. The JCWI is an independent national charity fighting for justice in immigration, asylum and nationality law in the UK since 1967. You're obviously no strangers to extreme stories of human tragedy, but I'd imagine that even by your standards, this past week has been an especially grim one. When did you first hear about the news from the channel and how has your week unfolded since? Well, yes, you're right. We have been absolutely devastated. I mean, you know, even when you know that these tragedies are coming and we have known that this was bound to happen sooner or later, the shock and the and the horror at it, the news actually coming in is, is really just indescribable. So, yeah, I think we found out the same way that everybody else did. We started um, getting emails popping up saying, have you seen this report? Have you seen this report? Um, at first unconfirmed and then seemingly quite quickly in this case confirmed reports from French press saying that an unknown number but at least 27 at that point had been found drowned in the channel and I don't know if you remember but at that point it, it did seem like the number was going to keep growing ever higher thankfully some of the people from that boat that capsized were rescued. And um, I mean, 27 is obviously a huge number of people whose lives were lost and they were men, women, children. But thankfully, it ended up being that it didn't climb any higher than that. So that's one small mercy. What happened next is, well, this is something that, as as we say, we've we've been sort of waiting for in a way. We knew this disaster was coming and... Um, JCWI being one of the organizations that works with people who have been crossing the channel and one of the organizations that have been standing up and speaking out against our current government's approach to people who've crossed the channel, which is one of sort of pushbacks and denials, delegitimization of the real and important protection claims that these people have and the legitimate reasons why they come to the UK. For me personally, the next step was doing a lot of media. So we immediately got called by BBC, I think within about 15 minutes of hearing the news is when I, I did my first interview. And then that evening, I spoke to people on LBC radio. I spoke to people on Sky News, on Channel 4 News, just repeating over and over again that we we saw this coming and we could have prevented this from happening. Because according to a report in the Daily Mail on Monday this week, one of the survivors, 21-year-old Mohammed Sheikha, 
claimed that SOS calls to both French and English authorities had been effectively ignored, with each side claiming that the craft was the other's responsibility. Do you know what the current state of play is with that story? So that's an extremely, I mean, uh, how could this story possibly be made worse? Um, Mm. Only by the possibility that we could have actually intervened and that we ignored calls for help. We are investigating those claims, so we are following up to try to find out whether there is obviously all these calls for help that come in to the British Coast Guard and to the French Coast Guard are recorded. We're in the process of following up to find out whether there's a record of those calls being made. So we are following up on those records. And certainly if the case, if it does turn out to be the case that they called the people that they were supposed to call for help and they continue to play this sick, twisted game of who touched it last in Europe, instead of saving people who were clearly at serious danger, stepped back and said, this isn't our problem. This is, you know, it's on the other side. Then we will certainly be pursuing legal redress for that because that is counter to our our legal um, responsibilities in terms of protecting life at sea. Stepping back a little, can you give us a sense of what's changed recently? Um, The number of people attempting sea crossings obviously fluctuates throughout the year. But we're at a point when we would expect fewer people to be setting out in boats, given the weather and the conditions. But by the independence analysis of Home Office data, they suggest that three times as many asylum seekers and migrants have already crossed the English Channel in small boats this year compared with 2020. Why is this year different? I think there's a number of factors playing in. So, of course, you know, the context to put this in is that we're looking at relatively stable numbers of asylum seekers overall this year doesn't show a significant increase in numbers from the last 10 years where we've we've had a roughly stable number of asylum claims made in the UK around 36,000 give or take each year and that's remained the same this year so what's changed is clearly the route people are taking and not the number of people choosing to try to come to the UK now there will be a number of factors that contributed to people deciding to take to boats rather than other means. One of those will be the restrictions that were put in place during the coronavirus pandemic, which obviously restricted all different modes of travel, including flights. In many cases, people who are making these journeys now might previously have tried to stow away in lorries, which is also extremely dangerous. But over the last several years, we've also made you know significant efforts to tighten security around getting onto lorries and made it more and more difficult for people to do that. And as the evidence has shown us time and time again, you know, this occurs around the world. When you tighten down one route that smugglers are using to bring people into a country, they shift to another route and that other route may well be more dangerous. In this case, it certainly is. And then, of course, there's the fact that these people are, you know, absolutely overwhelmingly, all of them, are seeking asylum. They're not trying to enter the UK and then disappear and live undocumented and work undocumented in the UK. They want to enter the asylum system and be recognised as refugees. And the figures show that in most cases they are. So what they've realised is that with these boats, you're extremely likely to be spotted. This is the busiest shipping lane in the world, obviously, as we've all seen, because all of our press has been camped out on the Kent coast for the last several months. These aren't people who are trying to hide away. They're trying to be spotted. And this is actually a mechanism whereby they will be identified by the authorities and taken to a place where they can seek asylum. And so on the basis that it works for them, which is that's their intention to come here and seek protection, that's what they've continued to do. And we are surprised and quite horrified that these crossings have continued well 
into the winter. I mean, we're in December now, and usually at this time of year, any crossings of these kinds would stop, but people are so desperate. And there's also a lot of misinformation being spread through smuggling networks and so on. The bill that's before Parliament, there's no doubt that that's being used at the moment to say, well, you better get across now because, you know, they're, they're going to shut down routes. And that's always been said when we were, you know, leaving the European Union, they say, oh, well, you've got to get across now. And it, there's always a reason why people can be lied to and told that this is their last chance. But also they are living destitute in Calais and the prospect of living there for another winter, you know, with their children, with the police harassment, with limited access to even food and water. They probably are just desperate to get across. You know, they see this continuing to live there in those conditions. is just not possible. It strikes me that one problem in this country is that much of the public debate around immigration and asylum talks in very isolationist terms and talks of us sort of dealing with a problem alone as one country. But by both legal obligation and material reality, we are part of a global system of refugee protection. What sort of health is that system in overall right now? I think that's such an important point that you raise. And we do, we spend so much time, even even those of us who advocate for a better system, spend so much time talking about what this government is doing, because frankly, it's horrific and we do need to oppose it. But the reality is that the UK will never have a fair and decent asylum system in isolation. If France doesn't have a fair and decent asylum system, if Greece doesn't have a fair and decent asylum system, then the UK simply, realistically speaking, cannot really have one. And so we do need this to be an international recognition that refugee protection only works conceptually if all countries step up and play their part. And what we're seeing currently and have been seeing over the last several years is this ever spiraling race to the bottom to be the one who rejects refugees and says, well, it's not on us. It's on France. It's not on France. It's on Denmark. It's not on Denmark. It's on Greece. And it's not on Greece. It's on Turkey and then Libya and then pushing people back, ever back, ever back until the reality is that refugee protection is no longer available. Where we're pursuing this race to the bottom, the losers are refugees. There's no reason why France should take people in if the UK doesn't. There's no reason why Italy should take people in if France doesn't. We need to all step up and play our part. And at the moment, that solidarity is completely lacking. I mean, that political situation that you outlined there, many countries are dealing with one which is not dissimilar to what we have in this country. You know, a government fending off populist parties on the right, misleading media coverage and a left which appears unsure of how to make a positive case for migration. But are there any countries where they've cracked that to some degree? Is there anywhere which we could learn from in terms of best practice? Well, there are some small examples. I'm I'm very sorry to say, I don't think we have an example where we can say, oh, that country's really doing it right. But I think that there are areas that we can draw from. One example might be that in the economic community of West African states, equal West, they have been moving towards a sort of free movement area between those states. So for citizens of those states to have the right to move across borders, have their qualifications recognised and, and have um, discrimination-free access to the labour market and so on. Quite similar to the EU model, although it's certainly not developed to that degree yet. What happened um, a few years back was when there was political instability in Mali, refugees escaping that violence, were able to cross over the border into the next country, which is, and, and as eco-West citizens, rather than having to go through a refugee protection application and be housed in sort of, you know, we've seen images of them, these, these camps that are run often by the UN around the world where people live sometimes for generations without sort of a, a durable solution. 
as refugees. Rather than having to go through that, people were simply as citizens of ECOWAS able to um, enter the country as as um, with with their rights intact. They were able to enter the labor market and then eventually also potentially to be able to return and move in a circular way and, and keep their rights intact. So that's the kind of example that we're a very, very long way from um, in the UK. But I think that it speaks to a really important issue, which is that well, the immediate thing that we absolutely need to do right now to protect people making this crossing in, in on the channel in these small boats is to provide them with a safe route to the UK in order to seek asylum. Really, the fundamental answer to how do we address this issue of building ever higher borders that um, migrants from around the world die behind but do not disappear behind is really moving to a world where we have more flexible mobility for people of all different income brackets around the world and that they can maintain their rights when they cross borders. That is fundamentally, and unfortunately it sounds insanely utopian now, even though it's just basic common sense. That is the direction that we need to move in. Do you have any sense of what motivates our government's policy? Because even removing all morality or human interest, the current approach clearly just does not work. Numbers are still going up. We've seen tragedies like last week's, you know, which you had been explicitly warning about for a long time beforehand, at a time when we're desperate for working age people to come to this country and fill the gaps in our labour market. And yet government policy always just seems to be do more of the same. Why do you think they're incapable of changing tack on this? It's a very good question and a really confusing state of affairs. I think that there are a number of reasons. And the first one sort of goes back to, to your previous question about this issue, about it, it. this is an international issue, right? The UK reasonably speaking, can take the lead and should take the lead in demonstrating what our humane response to refugee movements is. It is understandable that the government doesn't want to be the first to step out of this race to the bottom because the impact of one country closing its borders and and denying people their fundamental rights, the impact is very clearly that other countries must do the same, otherwise they'll theoretically Mm receive everybody. Obviously, that's also been proven never to be the case. But that's part of it, is that we can't fix this on our own. This government does not have good relationships and good negotiating skills in terms of cooperation with other countries. We've seen that in an untold number of examples. There's also the fact that I hesitate to say this, but really when you look at, you know, their response, which is do exactly the same thing, but more, the same thing that's led to deaths, the same thing that, you know, for 30 years, there have been migrants attempting to cross from Calais. I personally was talking about this exact same issue in 2014, the exact same issue and the exact same proposals in terms of response being touted as the solution. I think that there has to be an element of the fact that it does benefit them at least to a degree, to have this threatening other that they can say eight months of the year, this is front page news day after day after day. That's 36,000 people <laughs> occupying like a huge amount of the public discourse and riling up a huge amount of fear and prejudice and anger and, and nativism. They can put themselves up as the people who, you know, I mean, I don't know why people believe it, but who will get control of this, whereas, you know, Labour are wishy-washy and soft on this is is the way that they can present themselves. And it also means that we're talking about 36,000 refugees and we're not talking about 
the millions of the poorest families in this country whose income was slashed just a few weeks ago when this government voted to cut £20 off the top of universal credit. And we're not talking about the impact of that. We're not talking about a, a homelessness crisis that we're experiencing in the country this winter. We're not talking about the NHS being completely on its sneeze and, you know, bills going through Parliament that are aimed to sell off more of it. We're not talking about that because we're too busy talking about 30,000 refugees. Relating to that, I wanted to ask you about your strategic and tactical approach as an organisation, because you're obviously a campaigning group. And part of the challenge for any campaigning group is winning that sort of air war for public opinion. Now, you've personally been incredibly busy in the past week, you know, appearing on news shows and programmes like this. But how can you reframe that conversation? What do you think actually works in terms of shifting how ordinary people feel about this issue? Well, obviously, if I actually had the real answer to this question, then <laughs> I'd be prime minister and none of this would be a problem. But We would have wrapped this up already. <laughs> exactly. Yes. But I, I think that we do have some theories and some approaches that we've taken that have been more successful than others. And I think that one of the things that's really important and that has resonated well when we've used this messaging is sort of a recognition of the reality of the situation. People move. People have always moved. Human beings have always moved from where they can't live to where they can live. We move for love. We move to study. We move to work and we move to survive. And that is a reality that needs to be managed not a tap we can turn off through brutality. And I think that when you start talking to people in those terms and you say, realistically speaking, this is not something that you know we can or should want to end. This is just the way human beings are. And if you look mm. at the bigger picture, actually an, an approach that manages that and that gives people freedom to thrive and to reach their potential. And you talk about you know that society that we want in the end, that is one where people are supported and where again, yeah, we're not spending our entire energy fighting about the humanity of you know Syrian and Afghan men, women, and children who are trying to cross the channel. And rather, instead, we, we're holding the government to account for support supporting all of our communities, you know, where people are able to rebuild their lives and then flourish and bring so much to our communities. I think that is the area where the conversation gets further. But unfortunately, at the current time, it takes 27 people drowning for someone to be on BBC News saying we need safe routes. A couple of weeks ago, the conversation was, well, maybe if they drown, they'll be put off. It was literally there. And so we're so much on the back foot currently just talking about basic human values that it is it's quite dispiriting, but I suppose we mustn't lose hope. Relating to that, while there's obviously no sense in which events like last week or, say, the death of Alan Kurdi in 2015 or the lorry deaths in Essex in 2019 are anything other than absolute tragedies, in some way, do they offer an opportunity to move the public conversation, even if for a sort of a brief period? Is there like a window that opens up where as grim as these moments are, they do actually cut through to the public and to politicians? Or does it now take something different to do so in such a kind of 24-hour news cycle, media-saturated landscape? Is is there any sort of opportunity that comes out of these awful times? I think that this tragedy has woken some people up and has increased 
the pressure on the government. So we haven't talked about it in depth yet, but the government currently has a bill before Parliament, which is aiming to just basically throw refugee protection in the UK out the window. And that's their response to this. And I think that this tragedy has made people realise that there really is a need to try our, our hardest to push back against that bill and that cruel and inhuman approach. It is awful, but when that picture of Alan Gurdi was shown across our, our news screens, 100,000 people got out on the streets and demanded a change in approach. And European leaders did have to change and moderate their language and the way they spoke about this. And David Cameron introduced a very limited and insufficient, but still he introduced a resettlement scheme for Syria off the back of that reaction. And so I think that we mustn't worry too much about this is so bad, why, why are we waiting for something so bad to happen before we respond? Actually, people are dying at European borders every single day. Alan Quiddy was not the first nor the last. And so when there is a story that cuts through and that grabs people's attention and people realise in that moment that this is actually unacceptable and this is heartbreaking and I don't want to live in a country that does this, then we have to grab that opportunity. And that's why us at JCWI have been working so, so hard to try to push at this point for this message to get through because it's our only opportunity when when this happens and people step up and say no i don't want to see people drowning in the channel that is not what i want i i don't know what the solution is i don't believe in open borders or whatever but i don't want to see people drowning in the channel that is where we have to step up and say here are the sensible safe routes that we can provide that will stop this happening and we have to take those opportunities and in terms of offering people at least a formulation of those answers and solutions. There's a risk when you have these conversations with the public that in the face of a problem of such complexity, a kind of impotence can set in. So I was wondering, firstly, how do you battle against that personally, given what you're working with 24 hours a day? And secondly, what can the public actually do in concrete terms? You mentioned they're marching, but Beyond that and donating money to organisations such as yourself, how can listeners actually support your work or make a difference themselves to this story? You do ask me that question at quite a poignant moment because this morning we just woke up to to find that the government has added no less than 80 new amendments to its bill, all of which are aimed at, you know, I mean, you, you wouldn't even believe that it was possible, but making it mm. worse and making it more dangerous and more inhumane. It is on days like this that you really have to dig deep to find the motivation for what keeps you doing it. And I think that everybody plays their part and everybody who cares and and speaks out kindly about this issue, even just among your friends and your family, is doing their part. And you must imagine always what the situation would be like if we weren't here doing this work because sometimes it feels like we're getting nowhere but if we weren't here and nobody was standing up and saying humans should not be allowed to drown because of the idea of a border the situation would be so much worse and looking at it from that side we know we're making a huge difference every single one of us so I really really do encourage people to try their hardest not to lose hope and not to believe this can't be one it simply must be one Uh, approach at the moment is totally unsustainable. We all know climate change is going to drive more movement. And so in terms of what people can do, you've mentioned, you know, if, if, if there are local demonstrations that you can get yourself to, please do show up. Obviously, please donate to, to organisations that are doing our best to work on the front lines of this crisis. But also, especially right now, while this bill is going through Parliament, this week is the week to write to your MP, whether they're Labour, Conservative, SNP, anyone, and make it absolutely clear 
that, you know, because the government justifies all of this, everything, you know, the policies that directly kill, it justifies on the basis that, you know, the, what the people want is the will of the people and so on. And I know that that's not true. People listening will say, no, that's not true. These policies don't speak for me. Speak for yourself, write to your MP, please do it this week. Tell them this bill makes you feel sick and won't fix the problem. Tell them we need safe routes for people to come and seek asylum in the UK and that that's where your votes lie because we need to turn over this narrative that the UK is happy with having deadly borders. Interestingly, I noticed this week Pretty Patel's personal ratings in the latest Conservative home polls have gone down to 0.2%, with the site attributing that precipitous drop to uh, entirely to the small boats issue and her handling of it. So if nothing else, perhaps that threat of public dissatisfaction is wider spread than, you know, it's not just amongst listeners to shows like this, but apparently amongst Conservative voters, there's also some cut through there. And finally, if you had a magic wand, what are the few things which, if changed quickly and immediately, would actually make the system automatically fairer, more humane and more effective? What are the low-hanging fruit in terms of policy changes that we could actually be looking at? There's an amendment that's going to be debated to this bill next week. It's led by Neil Coyle from the Labour Party, but it's a cross-party amendment. And it would introduce a travel document. So if you found yourself in France and you have a connection to the UK and you have a reasonable likelihood that you'll be recognised as a refugee, you'd be able to apply for a travel document and then take the ferry or the Eurostar, just like you or I would, Justin. That Mm. amendment would in terms of, that's not, you know, a radical sort of like huge opening up in any way, shape or form that would target the group of people that we're specifically talking about who are taking to boats at the moment, who we know are very largely from countries which produce refugees and in many cases have clear links to the UK, whether that's family ties, linguistic ties and other reasons for w- wishing to come here. That would be a targeted amendment that could change the situation entirely for those people and take those people and their lives out of the hands of the smugglers and put it into a regulated system where they could cross over just safely and then enter our asylum system. So that's number one. First thing I think we absolutely must do. Next is looking at our asylum system here in the UK, because we've spent so much money and so much energy and so much rhetoric on these attempts to push people away and be ever harsher and ever crueler. And what we haven't done over that time is put any money or care into the design of an asylum system that works fairly and fast. So now we have an asylum system where people are waiting you know, for well over a year on average for their initial decision. So we have people who, in most cases, are recognized later down the line as refugees, wasting away in a system that is vastly underfunded and receiving decisions from staff in the home office who are very junior, very poorly trained, very overwhelmed with targets of how many people they're supposed to be turning away and who are, you know, under those circumstances, completely incapable of making proper decisions on cases that I might add are issues of life and death. So what we need is, and there's no substitute for this, I'm afraid, we need a fair and well-functioning asylum system here in the UK that produces good quality decisions in a reasonable timeframe. I'm not asking for anything radical. And then we need that to be accessible to the people who should be able to reach it. That means giving a travel document to people in Northern France who have a link to the UK. I would also say, finally, if any listeners are bracing themselves for 
politically charged and unpleasant conversations over the family dinner table this Christmas with relatives, the JCWI's site is an excellent resource for facts, rebuttals, talking points, all the actual information you need. So I would really recommend listeners go and check that out. Zoe Gardner, thank you for talking to me today. Thank you so much for having me, Justin. And, and you know, good luck to all your listeners over that Christmas table. And thank you for listening to The Bunker. If you enjoyed this episode, you can back us on the crowdfunding app, Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcasts to find out more. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Bunker Daily. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.